0: It's Monday,
1: June 26th, 2017, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at our brand new website, inquiring.show, on Twitter, at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Support for today's show comes from Shutterstock. You might know of Shutterstock as home to royalty-free photos, but they offer much more. Kickstart your next interactive project with video clips or music tracks from their collection. All of your creative needs serve to you in one place. Take advantage today of a 20% discount the company is offering for a limited time at Shutterstock.com slash minds. That's Shutterstock.com slash M-I-N-D-S. This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and try it free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only five bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at pb.com m-i-n-d-s.
2: I came across a new saying the other day. Protest is the new brunch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's hilarious.
2: It, because every weekend there seems to be a protest about something these days. I I don't recall it being this way a few years ago, but every weekend there's a pro, you know, a march for truth, a march for women, a march for science, a march for taxes, a march for whatever. And and those are just the ones that are aimed against the, the current president. There's always a protest about something.
1: And, you know, you have to wait in line and the food is disappointing.
2: <laughs> no doubt the food is disappointing. I, I think the subversive part about that statement is that protests have lost their oomph, if you will, in modern times. Because maybe how they're organized has become so easy that they don't carry the same weight they did 20 or 30 years ago. Really? Yeah, I think this is a fundamentally interesting question with how many protests are out there. Uh, and I was involved in leading the March for Science. I had this question like, are these effective at all? So I sought out a social science researcher uh, and I found Zainab Tufekci. He has a new book out called Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of the Networked Protests. And she really looked at uh, social movements in the context of the digital tools that are being utilized to help organize them and contrasted them with famous protests in the in the past, like the civil rights movement, uh, and even contrasted it with protests overseas, like what happened in Egypt in Tahrir Square and what happened in Giza Park in Turkey, and how technology is not only enabling these, but shaping the type of protests that are emerging. Hmm. So with that, let's take a short break. We'll be back with my interview with Zeynep Tufekci.
1: This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. You can print stamps from your computer, which saves you time and money, of course. No more waiting in line at the post office, which is my least favorite thing to do. But you also don't need special equipment. You can also compare the shipping rates and delivery times between USPS and other major carriers to make sure that you always get the best deal when you're shipping something. You can print prepaid shipping labels for USPS, UPS, and many other companies. You can track your shipments from the same easy-to-use interface. How do they manage to get everything done so cheaply? Well Pitney Bowes has negotiated special rates for SendPro users, and savings start at just 3 cents per stamp. Visit pb.com minds to learn more, and when you sign up, you'll get Send pro free for 90 days. You'll get a free 10-pound scale, and when your free trial is over, you'll get SendPro for only $5 a month. That special rate is good for the lifetime of your Send pro subscription. That's $5 a month for SendPro versus $15.99 a month for Stamps.com. That's three times the features at one-third the price. But you can only get this deal for a limited time by going to pb.com slash minds. That's pb.com slash m-i-n-d-s to take advantage of this incredible offer.
2: Zainab Tufekshi, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
2: This topic is both personal and professional for you because you've grown up in areas where protests have become a a hallmark, but you also talk about being in Giza Park uh, in Turkey when protests dominated the scene. Can you talk about how your observations there informed this book?
3: Well, um, I mean, I study social movements, so I had been studying many different movements, including ones in the U.S., like Occupy and um, the Arab Uprisings, and I'd been uh, studying many of them over the years, but it was really a different thing to um, hear of the ones that started in Gezi Park uh, in 2013 and go there because I'm from Turkey. So it's sort of a country that I know very well, obviously. And the Gezi Park protests uh, happened basically three blocks from where I was born. Um, it was very close to uh places I knew, and the reason that it was analytically so important for me is that uh, I basically started seeing it on Twitter and um, just jumped on a plane. To, there was really no other choice for me, given what I studied. I just had to go. Um, and then ended up at a place that seemed unrecognizable to me in how it was playing out, despite the way I, it was so familiar to me. It was a very familiar place. But it had all these characteristics, like uh, it was spontaneous, it was leaderless, it was um, just seemed to come out of nowhere. And it was run with social media uh, and sort of the occupation of doing a lot of the coordination. The reason that was so striking to me uh, personally is that, you know, I had been studying a lot of these movements elsewhere. And, you know, Arab Spring, you think, well, you know, they didn't really have um, a lot of civic society. So the fact that it was kind of leaderless and lack of organizational infrastructure seemed kind of normal. And then you have the indignados in Southern Europe, Spain, Greece, um, Italy to a degree. And you think, well, you know, Spanish, they always had anarchists. And then you have Occupy in the US and it's New York. And you keep explaining each one specifically. But when you saw the one in Turkey, uh, a country that had no real tradition of spontaneous or leaderless protests, uh, especially at that scale. Uh, It was kind of this moment for me that crystallized a couple of things that had been happening that I knew were happening, but it takes maybe sometimes your home country to drive it home to sort of say, yep, this is different. And one of them was the crucial role that social media was playing in initiating these
2: protests. How, how was social media playing? And the second
3: was how, yeah, yeah. It, well, along with the globalization of uh, protest culture, what happened was instead of having an organization call it and organize it and work for uh, doing it for years and all of that, but you could just go from just a random seeming spark to a large scale protest in three, four days, which is what happened. Uh, in just a couple of days, um, the whole thing became very big, millions of people. Uh, and before, there was basically no indication that this was even going to happen. So that's the way that you kind of see in a lot of places. Um, the protests, in even in you know, Occupy, it started with an email, and the, uh, the, e- the people who sent the email, Basically, said this is the ad busters. They said, you know what, you can really get into the protest very quickly and just sort of go from let's have this to let's have a large protest in a couple of months. And if you study social movements like I do, one thing you know is that in the past, it used to take an enormous amount of effort just to get to the place where you could hold the protest. You know, the one I compare to uh, is. The civil rights movement, because well, partly because everybody knows uh, about it, a lot of people know the March on Washington, um, the one that there was the famous "I uh, Have a Dream" speech by Dr. King. Well, there was about ten years of sustained organizing before you could even get to the stage where you could hold that kind of protest. Whereas if you're not compare it to something um, like current, like the Women's March movement, it went from a Facebook post to a Big march in three months. Now, that's not saying the organizers didn't do a lot of work. Of course, the organizers always do a lot of work, and these people did too. But they did three months of hard work, and they weren't – they didn't need to be as many people, and they didn't need to be as sort of, you know, many years of working together uh, as the civil rights movement people had to do, because you couldn't even imagine – you know, the logistics, bringing all these people in, buses taking them out, all those things require this infrastructure. So the key difference for me is in the past, if you had a movement that could hold a protest, the protest, the large march on Washington, it was more like a statement. It was telling the people in power, telling the government, look, if I can do this, imagine what, I can, what else I can do. Because you're kind of showing the muscles you had Hold that protest. Whereas right now, because of digital technologies and scaling up so fast, uh, what you're basically doing is a question mark. You're saying, "I can, you know, maybe do much more," but it's not really clear because it's not the consequence of years of organizing. You know, the past protests were more or less a culmination, whereas right now um, they are the beginning. They're like the first step rather than the last step. So that's, I think, the big Difference between current protests, yeah.
2: This hits close to home for me because I was one of the leads of the March for Science, and seeing it go from a beginning of a Twitter account to execution of a march, which was was ninety days. And I I think what was telling that resonates is that I didn't meet many of the people that I worked with every day in and day out until after the march had happened, and. It represents, like, I, I think it touches on something you touch on in the book, is there's a fragility to this movement because we didn't have this shared identity that we walked in the door with.
3: All right. So, I mean, you could have a shared identity interacting online, too, perhaps, but it would take more than three months or 90 days, as you said, to build that kind of resilience. Because when you're doing a lot of tedious work, right, and I'm not, like, I want to be clear, I'm not a fan of tedious work. And I'm also not against using social media for what it's good for, but I just want to illustrate the difference. If you had to do three years of tedious work with, with these people just to get to the point where you could hold the march, you would have ironed out ways of working together. For example, how do you make decisions? It's kind of easy to make decisions when you've got the momentum of a march going on. You're going to hold the march. You know what you're going to do. You kind of go towards it. But when you face a big challenge... And that's what any movement that gets big enough faces a challenge. And you have to make a decision. You have to say, what's next for us? Does your group have a mechanism by which you arrive at the next decision? I don't know. Do you? For, let me ask you. I know you're interviewing me, but like, how would you guys decide what's next?
2: We you? don't. I mean, to to be perfectly frank, we're there working it out right yeah. now. And you're right.
3: That's exactly what I mean. Yeah, this is like, this is turning into a great example because it doesn't mean that you don't have strength, it just means that you don't have a way to make a decision because you didn't really have spent three years hashing out how you would make decisions. Now this, on the one hand, being able to scale up so quickly is an advantage. But on, but on the other hand, this leads to something I call tactical freeze in the book because you don't have a way to make a decision together. Very often movements end up, um, the movements I studied recently end up just repeating themselves because they can't take tactical innovation and then decide they're going to do this and then take a curve, right? So on my Facebook feed not right now, I think there's like 10 more marches being organized. And I don't see this as a sign of strength. I see this as a sign of inability to figure out what might be next. And that's not because I'm against marches. There's a time for marches. I march my whole life. Um, But the 8th march doesn't really add that much to you. The 18th, not much, right? So after some point. If you look at successful movements, they go from tactic to tactic. They sometimes march, they go back to something else. Maybe they march again. It's Like they analyze what's in front of them and then they make a decision. When you get together in 90 days and you're just really focused on just the logistics of getting this march off the ground, What you haven't built is that collective decision-making capacity and that kind of resilience. And in a country like the U.S., it might end up with you kind of not able to decide and frozen tactically. In a country where you're facing repression or in an authoritarian state, it could just be they're going to come crush you without you being able to tactically respond. Now, it may well be that repression will crush you anyway. I don't want to sound like only if you could make decisions, everything would be perfect. No, I mean, repression severe enough will crush anything. But lacking ability to figure out the strategic steps and which tactics fit into which strategic steps is really a weakness for these kinds of movements that go from zero to 100 miles. I mean, I I say it like this you go from zero to 100 miles using the power social media gives you. And it's real power. You, You know, get a call out, Twitter account, there you go. That's actual power. But while you're going from zero to 100 miles, um, your car isn't fully built. You have to take a curve. And your steering wheel isn't built yet. You see what I'm saying? It's because you use digital technology to get, get to that speed. And it's that step two, step three, step four, uh, that you go into so fast. And one thing is that a lot of people have the sense that it's they really, they have the sense of real power because they just held this huge march or they did something with digital media, it's actually misleading. I almost want to warn people and say, you know what, you did something. And that may well be a great thing, but it doesn't imply the kind of strength it feels like based on your historical examples. You know, great marches of the past represented something else because of what it took to get there. I mean, it's almost like you're running, but the shoes have springs in your, you know, the shoes have springs on their Uh, the soles, and you're running really fast, but compared to somebody, let's say, who was running barefoot, you don't actually have the same kind of muscles, and those muscles are eventually what help determine how far movements can go, because social change is clearly a marathon.
2: Yeah, it, it really resonates that, you know, we're in the car that's not fully built, going 100 miles an hour, and by the time you realize it, you look around and you notice, oh no, we're going 100 miles an hour. But we don't have all the right pieces of this fully formed car. There there is an inference in what you just said that there's a way that the the tool of technology is making this easier to to march together to to protest together, but that easiness is not necessarily respected by the uh, by the people that we're protesting against, or the policies you're protesting against. Can you elaborate on on what you meant by sort of that that strength and weakness?
3: Sure. I mean, uh, so the, the, this is like the yeah. So it's kind of uh, once again, if you're if you want to change the narrative, grab attention, social media is great. So I, I mean, I I want to be clear about the things for which it's really powerful for. But on the other hand, like, think of the tech approach to things. Uh, what do they want to do? They want to put an app that calls a taxi on your smartphone. I now, mean, on the one hand, makes life easier, fine. Uh, for that, it works. But now consider it to something like calling your representative. There's now all these bots. If you enter your zip code, they'll just send a bunch of faxes to your representative. Um, in fact, they even advertise themselves like, it's just two minutes. Now, go back to the way I conceptualize social movements. You're not really like the march itself isn't the magic. It's the strength you show, the capacity you signal saying, look, if I can march, I can do all of this. That's where their strength comes from. So if you're using a bot and it really takes two minutes, your congressperson isn't stupid, right? They know it took you just two minutes and they're just two minutes afraid of you. So in the past, if you had, you know, 10,000 people calling a congressperson, well, they probably would be a lot more afraid because that took a lot of organizing, you know, how did you get the word out? How did you convince so many people? If so many people had to, you know, even just dialing yourself versus automating it, it adds friction to it. So when you make something easier in politics, you're actually not signaling more strength. You're signaling exactly the amount of strength something it takes to do. Um, so I already see it. Republican congressmen they get lots of calls. What are they doing? They're ignoring them, because if anything, people in power are quick to learn these things. When it first happens, they get blindsided and they go, "Whoa, ten thousand calls!" remember the election comes and goes, and they're like, oh, "Okay, let me adjust this. Ten thousand calls means ten thousand two minutes. It doesn't mean ten thousand one hours. It doesn't mean." 10,000 people organized to canvas against me. And once they figure that out, they discount it. And I have to say, their discounting is accurate, because if you look at the recent history, um, social media is empowering social change, for sure, so you have more movements. But the authoritarians on the counter, you know, the people who are sort of uh, trying to make these movements ineffective seem to have the upper end. The movements don't have the same kind of teeth, and that's partially because of how They come to being. They can change, like Occupy did. They can change the way we think about something because they have great narrative power and sometimes they have great legitimacy. But narrative power and legitimacy do not by themselves threaten the powerful.
2: So what would be an example of a modern social movement demonstrating that strength? What would that look like in a way that actually, um, as you sort of term it, you know, threatened these uh, people in power
3: well if you want an example of a recent social movement that um, was really successful and used a lot of digital technology too it's the tea party Uh, i know a lot of people think of tea party as astrosurf because they got funding from the billionaires and absolutely that funding helped but it's a real movement Uh, if you look at the academic studies of it there are lots of people and just like like say women's march or other thing it kind of started online it snowballed online after um you know there was a speech and there was a rant on cnbc and then people kind of um coalesced around it and they had tax day protests in april 15 of 2009 now if you look at studies looking at the outcome of these protests the places that were able to hold these protests versus the places that were rained out were had really different outcomes the protests absolutely matter in that people found each other uh, and the places that got rained out had weaker Tea Party movements with weaker consequences. So the protest matter was digitally organized. But here's the difference. Uh, remember how I said that it's a question mark? It depends what you're going to do with it. The Tea Party, researchers found, um, became very focused on flexing its muscles electorally. right? So the little groups that got organized were very much focused on how do we Elect the people we want? How do we primary the ones we don't want from our party? How do we defeat the ones from the other party? And how do we sort of uh, make our legislative considerations top priority, something that's hard for the leadership, both of the Republican Party to oppose and for the Democrats to override? And they did, to their sort of help, they had um, a couple of billionaires that gave, gave them a lot of funding for infrastructure, which once again, you don't see on the left. After all the bruhaha over the resistance and all of that, even its most famous group, say the Indivisibles, which is doing this congressional district by district organizing, uh, last I checked, which is a couple of days ago, its total funding was 2.1 million dollars, and that was health from grassroots. So we're talking 2.1 million with an M, uh, whereas just the Co. brothers alone spent a billion with a B um, in, in 2016 alone. So the Tea Party got this infrastructure. Uh, funding very quickly, which the left, neither foundations nor you know tech billionaires, nobody on the left funds infrastructure, which is why the right always wins. Uh, and then the Tea Party used its orientation to be v- very policy and electoral focused. And then it worked. They got about, because U.S. is a high apathy uh, country, if you just push a little, you can do a lot. And they organized and pushed. And they uh, first got their 50 congressional, about 50 congressional um, congresspeople, which created their uh, caucus, uh, which acted effectively as a veto to any Republican, even the slightest amount of um, cooperation with what could have been Barack Obama's second term agenda. In fact, I would argue they managed to completely torpedo it, and they managed to then elect a president. Because if you look at the Tea Party base, what the academic research says they like, and what Trump, Donald Trump says, um, there's great convergence. So on the right, you have a similar movement that starts from the digital uh, online organizing that starts sort of spontaneously. The difference is the next steps it takes are very much oriented towards building the kind of infrastructure that makes up for the fact that they just got started. Uh, And the right always for the past maybe 30 years, 20 years has had more infrastructure in place to begin with. So they're starting from the uh, stronger place. Uh, So whereas on the left, with all the talk of resistance, I give you the Indivisibles example again. Um, It's the kind of thing you would need if you wanted to win the 2018 election by a big margin, uh, at least in the house. And they have a total of, let me see, six organizers. This is for the whole country. I mean, a couple of months. Yeah, this is the difference. Like the infrastructure building, the Tea Party made up for what it was missing because it scaled up so fast. Whereas the left or the liberal side, the left liberal example is um, organizing March after March, which doesn't build your infrastructure. I mean, it's fine to do it once or twice to signal something, to find one another. There's lots of green- reasons to hold marches but what they don't do is build infrastructure and that pivot neither on the funders nor the foundations nor the sort of liberal money nor on really on the li- sort of um, grassroots, have we seen despite some efforts there's in mean, there's a lot of grassroots energy i just yeah, you know, i want to be clear there's enormous amount but it's very hard to convert that to infrastructure that kind of makes up for how the movement got started and that's what I'm watching right now to see where this goes.
2: This is a bit of a naive question, but you keep talking about fear as the biggest motivator here, that the threat. Is there any examples where fear isn't the motivation, that there is some sort of tug at some other sort of um, uh, emotion or element that actually promotes change? You mean... um... Everything you're suggesting is electoral threat or money threat.
3: Yeah, well, I I, but I don't mean like I. This is the thing. I don't mean to um, discount cultural change at all. I mean cultural change is quite important, um, and it's the bedrock of social change. It just isn't the same if it isn't paired. So, if I'm um, if I'm emphasizing the um, electoral part, I'm just kind of explaining what is missing from the left liberal side of it. Um, it's like, think of a stool, uh, and the stool has three legs maybe, the narrative cultural part, which the left liberal side is really good at, uh, electoral institutional part, and then uh, a disruptive part that, in like civil disobedience, that's not really fully on the table right now uh, for complicated reasons in the US. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And what you have is sort of slop-sided one. In terms of, to give you an example of the power of culture, which I don't at all dismiss, it's absolutely crucial. And look at the um, gay rights movement uh, in the U.S., right? They have absolutely one culture. They convince people. They want hearts and minds. Um, and they're very hard to oppose because of that. Because if you look at it, their, their opposition comes basically from older people. And that's it. Like, even if you go to among conservatives, go to the younger people, there's enormous support compared to the past, even in 10, 20 years, uh, for, say, marriage equality, civil rights for gays, and all of those things. And that's a great example of how, you know, multiple decades of cultural work, but that's not all they did. There's legal work, there's other stuff, but the bedrock of it, I believe, is they convince people they want hearts and minds. Um, And that's an example of how that also works um, in that but you know so but the gay rights movement is a very strategic movement too so they did a bunch of things what i'm trying to say is the digital media reconfigures how and what kind of sort of what kind of capacities that your movement's developing the cultural narrative capacity is very important electoral capacity is very important depends on where you are in history um, the disruptive capacity, like the ability to withhold consent and stop cooperating, say the Indian independence movement, that can be very important too. And in the past, they were, you know, they were aligned in a particular way because you did not have Twitter or Facebook or Google spreadsheets to organize your stuff. They came together in different ways. Now they don't come together in the same ways. And we see a lot of movements on the sort of the left side, which also is sensibility wise, it's more participatory participatory and more horizontal, uh, it comes together in a new way. And it often has the challenges that I just outlined in that it doesn't figure out a way to collectively make decisions and find the next tactic and fund infrastructure. So that's kind of um, what I say. So I'm not dismissing the cultural change at all. I'm not saying people should just work towards elections. I'm just saying these are the ways through which you usually change society. You have these multiple capacities.
2: Given that. Twitter and Facebook are, are the social networks of, of sort of choice here. They're not ones that are really about consensus making and decision making, as you suggest. Are they going to play an ongoing pivotal role in the rise of future social movements?
3: So the way I like to talk about it is um, like when, you ha- when you're in a meeting, it's, it's my go-to example. When you're in a meeting, the first thing you want is, I don't know about you, but my first idea is when is this thing going to end? right? When I'm in a meeting, the only thing I want is to know exactly and hopefully how soon is this going to end? Because you want meetings to conclude and come to a decision and sort of uh, go there. Now, Facebook and Twitter are attention grabbing places, right? They are places that are designed to keep you there forever. So basically, you're having your meetings in places that are designed to make meetings never, never, ever end. It's the the worst possible place to be talking about movement work. I mean, Facebook and Twitter are great for grabbing attention. They're great for um, just discussing what's going on. They're really not good for figuring out what's next, right? Uh, Yet we do it there. And in fact, if anything, because they're attention-grabbing spaces, what I find they they do is that they're very... um, well, let me say it like there are places that stoke fields. They stoke fires of bickering and factions and everybody arguing with one another. Partly because the left liberal side already is kind of leaderless and participatory by sensibility. So you have these people who are sort of de facto spokespeople on social media, but without any formal accountability. And you have all these people who have disagreements with them. You have a setup that has no mechanism of accountability or making decisions. So what people end up doing is they just start arguing with one another on social media, publicly, in ways that can be captured and screenshotted and brought out along again and again and again. So that's the kind of thing that's I might seem like um, it might seem like a minor thing. You might say, "Really, bickering is that an important thing?" It is, because it's actually a side function of the fact that you don't have a mechanism of decision making that is paired with accountability. And you are basically um, going from this like, lack of accountability to just um, bickering and bickering and bickering and then kind of dividing into one another and dehumanizing one another. And you might sound, again, it might sound like, really, is this a big deal? But this is actually a pretty big deal. In lots of other countries, um, we have seen this kind of sort of internal, um uh, pulling apart because, you know, lack of decision making structure combined with just doing it all on Facebook and Twitter, absolutely unsuited to it, has been quite destructive to people. And, uh, and quite destructive to the movements, because you're already struggling on what's next. And then you have this constant arguing, fighting uh, that just what I've seen it do is completely demoralize movement people. And right now, it might seem like they'll never happen in the United States, but people are so full of energy. I want to say people were very full of energy in Tahir Square, and they were full of energy in Gezi Park and lots of other places. And it's absolutely true. It's like in a lot of places, the repression plays a major role, but it's not the only thing that demoralizes people. So I don't want to blame victims here. But I think you see this in the US too. You see this in Black Lives Matter movement. That was really sort of, there was a lot of internal tensions that were playing out on Twitter before, exactly because of this reason. It's kind of not much so since the election, because the stakes are so high. So that's the kind of thing that uh, I think about in using these platforms that are designed to do something completely different, which is capture your attention to sell to advertisers.
2: My last question is, given your long-term study of social movements and, and how they've grown, risen, fallen apart, do you have a piece of advice for the modern social movements when they're thinking about how they're going to move forward and not just how, but where they move forward and what platforms they use?
3: Well, uh, as soon as possible, they should try to figure out how to make decisions uh, together and focus on that. Because if you can't make decisions together, it almost doesn't matter what the mechanism is people have. uh, I mean, it does matter that you want it to be a mechanism that works, right? So consensus doesn't work because it's such a high bar you can never make a decision it makes it easy for one person to block it but after other than that you know there's all these participatory ways of you know people can discuss in the end they can vote they can sort of um try to put a time limit i mean some way in which set up a process um that concludes to a decision so that they can do that and how to build infrastructure that strengthens whatever it is they're missing right if you just have electoral infrastructure. And if you have um, no cultural outreach, that wouldn't work either. Right now, on the left liberal side, you have the cultural power, but not the electoral infrastructure, the community infrastructure. So that's what you would need to do. So um, let me put it this way. If I had one advice, I would say try to see yourself from the view of the people that you're trying to threaten or change. Like the military people call this like the red team. Just be the other side. And look at yourself as realistically as you can and say, does what these people do right now threaten me? Is it something that I have to take into account? Should I change my vote? Should I change my policy? Am I going to be ousted? Am I going to be replaced, right? Um, And try to be sort of really cold-blooded about assessing your weaknesses accurately. And a lot of people don't like doing it because social movements, there's a lot of rah-rah, we win, we win kind of thing that is used to keep people motivated. But I think realism is a great motivator because if you want to win, the best thing is for you to have an accurate assessment. And even some people say, it sounds a little downer to say, well, we don't really have this yet. It's better to know it and to build it than to just cheerlead. And usually what's missing on the left liberal side is funding for infrastructure and decision making. Those are my two things that I see really Missing, whereas culture seems to be that the, the left liberal side is quite strong in that.
2: Your recent book is "Twitter and Tear Gas: The Power and Fragility of Networked Protest." Uh, Zainab Tufekci, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds.
3: Thank you for inviting me.
1: Wow. Well, did that conversation change how you look at your work in the si- March for Science?
2: Yes. I'm saying that through slightly gritted teeth. Like, it it reinforced a lot of things that I, I felt. Like, it was 90 days from somebody starting a Twitter account for the March for Science until the march happened.
1: But you worked so hard, and so many people did, and it really seemed galvanizing. I mean, I hadn't seen that kind of coming together in the scientific community ever.
2: Yeah. And there's probably positive things that will emerge out of it. But there are also fundamental problems. In 90 days... Can you really coalesce around structural things like she mentioned, like how are decisions made? Are we really aligned on mission and values, like in a way that's really going to make something last? And I think there's something interesting, uh, an interesting idea she really presented that's really stuck with me is like, do you start with a march?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And, and you know, maybe that's part of the problem in the sense that, you know, there were a lot of uh, people had a lot of opinions about, you know, and there was a lot of infighting between scientists about what the march should be about, and who should be included, and, and what causes should be championed, and what should be left out. And, you know, that almost became more newsworthy more um, talked about than the numbers or the people that came out.
2: I, and in a way, that might actually have the lingering value, that sort of poison pill, so that a lot of those issues that have been below the surface, whether it be diversity in science, whether it be um, generational discomfort with with how we talk about science, those things coming to the fore might actually have lingering impact.
1: So what do you think, If let's say you hadn't started with a march, what would that movement have started with? What, what, what do you think is the right way to begin that movement?
2: It was in the afterglow of the women's march. That's why, I mean, they just Mm -hmm. copied a tactic. Like we just copied a tactic that was prevalent and we hit it this right moment. So I think on the honest answer to that is it wouldn't have started. Like it just wouldn't have happened. There wasn't this coalescing moment where people wouldn't have said like, let's march. But Strategically, if there was a way to do something strategically, it would have been more about like how do we have conversations about science in hyper-localized ways that push forth a you know a real pro-science. Agenda in communities across this country, not just in like urban elite centers.
1: So can you look back and see why the Women's March was presumably so successful and the March for Science less so, if that's an accurate representation? I don't
2: think that's an accurate interpretation because I feel like the, um, I think there's a lot to still talk about whether the Women's March was actually successful. And successful for having a show of solidarity? 100%. Like, did it change anything? Did it change anything? We don't know.
1: Well, Wonder Woman came out,
2: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> only because of the women's march did Wonder Woman come out clearly. And so, I think they the same conversation will happen about the science march and all of these other things. But it did, I did lay, leave that conversation with Zainab with, with a real sense that there are other tactics that you can use right now, um, to protest that might be more demonstrative of change to the power in place, that they would respect more. They've seen these marches now. Doing another march isn't going to, do, I think, move the needle. Like, as she put it, the 8th march doesn't do a whole lot, right? <laughs> so is in like, you know, crowding it, the town halls, like, we've seen that. We've seen the yelling at town halls.
1: But that seems to have a real effect. I mean, you know, the
2: it Affordable did,
1: Care Act is a great example. It seems it, to have gotten shut down.
2: It did have an effect. But
1: Will it again in the future. Will it
2: again, as you use that over and over again. The one that, you know, we didn't talk about this in the interview, but she had an interesting thre- a Twitter thread about this. And um, the first time that um, Obamacare was up for repeal in the House, she had gone out and she said, you want to know a research-based perspective on this? You want to make a difference? Put up a fundraising page and in big, giant letters, show how much money you're raising. Don't do anything with the money. Just like you know, make it clear this is about healthcare. But show, show your your potential power through money. People understand the currency of money. She's like, no one's done that. Mm-hmm. You show a, a ticker, big letters that just keeps going up and up and up. How much money people are raising, the message will get across.
1: Well, I mean, that was like the big controversy with Jill Stein, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So lessons learned, money talks. <laughs> so that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank those people whose money talks to us on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Michael Galgool, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Herring Chen, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you for your support. You can visit our brand new website at inquiring.show, and you can support us yourselves at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to Minds at climatedesk.org.
2: Inquiring Minds is produced by paid protester Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with many media outlets. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Jian.
1: And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Viss.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.
1: This episode is brought to you by SendPro from Pitney Bowes. SendPro has three times the features of Stamps.com at one-third the price. Visit pb.com slash minds to learn more and try it free for 90 days. After that, you'll get SendPro for only five bucks a month. That's a third of the cost of Stamps.com. That special $5 rate is good for the lifetime of your SendPro subscription, but only when you sign up at
0: pb.com m-i-n-d-s.